right. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to your word and we pray that your spirit would uh, move through your word and would teach and instruct us and that we wouldn't uh, resist anything that your word teaches us. You have for us today in Isaiah 5 a challenging word. It's a convicting word. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you wouldn't allow us to resist you, uh, that you would be so gracious to press in where we maybe are hesitant to let you press in and that we would see that when you do that, that you do so in a way that brings life and flourishing and thriving, that you're good, that your spirit, you are good, and Father, you are good, and Father's a good Father. Uh, when you discipline us, when you correct us, when you convict us of things, you do so for our good, not to get us to align with some arbitrary set of rules, but because you know how life works best, and you want your kids to experience that. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear today. We pray it in Jesus' name and in the power of his spirit. Amen. If you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, and that's where we'll be today. I was thinking about this today. Um, I was thinking, so the, the, the passage we're going to look at today is in this section. If you've been with us in the book of Isaiah, we're studying the book of Isaiah, and the reason we study whole books of the Bible is because it prevents us from just skipping hard stuff, right? When you say, we're going to commit to go through the whole Bible, we're going to commit to study a whole book of the Bible, then you don't get the luxury of just going, well, let's hit the highlights. Let's hit the stuff that we like that makes us feel good, and then we'll kind of skip over the hard stuff or the stuff that's tough on us. And so if you've been with us, church, have you noticed that Isaiah 1 through 5, not so easy? Right, kind of challenging, hard stuff that God is saying to his people. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, then it's pretty plain that our job is to say, okay, uh, if God is saying to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the people of Jerusalem, if he's saying to them, this is where you've missed it and this is what needs to be corrected, uh, then the job for us is to say as, as Christ's followers, are those same things true of us that were true of Judah, true of Israel? And if they are, then God would speak that word of conviction to us and we need to align ourselves or receive that word of conviction and then change. Is that a fair assessment of how we should handle this? Yes? Awesome, okay. But what that got me thinking about this week is for those of you who are not believers, who are not followers of Jesus, like what, what do I do with this, right? You might be asking that question of yourself. What, am I, what on earth do I do with these first five chapters of Isaiah? I mean, I'm here kind of exploring faith and wondering if Jesus is who he says he is. And, and so they're talking about things the church should be or the people of God should be. And I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not even sure I believe in God, perhaps. And so the question for me is, well, what... What difference does this make to me? And I'll share a story with you that I heard that I thought was helpful, maybe particularly to you if you find yourself in that situation. Uh, Charlie Mackesy is an author, uh, not an author, an, a, um, an artist uh, in England, and a pretty well-known artist, uh, a gifted guy. And he has become a follower of Jesus. He encountered Jesus and it changed him significantly. But before he did, he, I heard him share a story about how he used to think about people who were Christians, people who were in the church. And the story went something like this. He said, there's a dad and his son, actually like a whole family, uh, and the son's sitting next to the dad. They're at church, and they're at one of those churches where they would say corporate prayers, common prayers. You guys been at a church like that? We don't do that a ton. We do it from time to time. But it's where we would all stand up together, and we would say, we would kind of repeat a prayer corporately together. So we'd all say the same things. And this was a corporate prayer of confession. So this is God's people saying, God, we have sinned against you. We have failed to honor you. You know, I don't know the exact content of the prayer. And the son kind of tugs on the dad's, you know, Tugs on his shirt and says, says, Daddy, what did you do wrong? 
right? Because dad's praying, like, Lord, forgive me. And he's, what did you do wrong? And, and the dad says, well, oh, no, no, no. I mean, not, not just me, like all of us, all of us. And so he's like, oh, okay. So, you know, he thinks about that for a minute and then he has to go to the bathroom. So he, he juts out and heads to the bathroom. A couple minutes later, he comes back. But to the father's horror, the son, he sees him come out at the front of the sanctuary through the doors. And he doesn't just kind of move towards the back aisle down towards the seat. He just heads right up onto the stage. This is a five-year-old boy. And so he gets up on the stage, the vicar, the pastor, that's what, I guess that's what they call a pastor in England, a vicar. Uh, and so he comes up on the stage and he looks at everybody. And the vicar kind of looks at him and he looks at everybody and he goes, naughty, naughty, <laughs> naughty, naughty. Just wags his finger at all of them. The dad is horrified and he's shocked. And Charlie told that story because he said, you know, before I came to Jesus, that's what I used to think the church was. I just think it was a bunch of people standing above everybody else, sort of saying naughty, naughty, naughty to the rest of you. That sort of self-righteousness. Church, those of you who follow Jesus, would you acknowledge that that's, that can be how we are known? That's how people see us sometimes. And, and we are the ones who are guilty of giving off that impression. They don't see us that way for no reason. Uh, and, you know, as Charlie told that story, it struck me. It struck me uh, that if you are not a follower of Jesus and you're here, and that's, that's every week, there's many of you who are not followers of Jesus, so we know that, and we're so glad that you're here. We recognize that we can come off that way, but here's what I think is possibly where these words of conviction that God is gonna give to those of us who are his people, where your job kind of comes into play is, I would say to you that as a follower of Jesus, we invite you to tell us when we are not living according to God's standard. We invite you to tell us, and we promise, if we can, church, to not respond defensively, to not say, well, who are you to think of me? That When you become a follower of Jesus, by the way, you lay down the right to be defensive. You lay it down. Because God has this history of using people who are not his followers to tell his followers where they're being hypocrites and where they're not living out what God has told them to do. He just has this history of doing that. He does it again and again and again. We're gonna see it in Isaiah. And so we just invite you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you, if you came with a friend perhaps, we invite, you know, like that friend should look to you to say, hey man, I, I know that I claim to be a follower of Jesus and that has implications for the way that I should live and I don't always live that way. So I invite you to tell me when you see me failing in that way. Now, as you do that, as you're a non-believer, I hope that you might recognize that the call to live a, kind of, a certain kind of life as a follower of Jesus is the kind of life that we should all want to live. And I would include you in that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you should want that kind of life as well. We want to be a people, church, I hope someone will say amen to this. We want to be a people who are humble, not haughty, who are joy-filled and who love deeply and who want to give grace and mercy to all those around us. Would you say amen to that? Yeah. And we could probably say amen to the fact that we don't do that very well sometimes as well. So let's look at Isaiah 5 today. Again, the message for those of us who are followers of Jesus is this. He's gonna say that God expects his people to produce a harvest of justice and righteousness and that they fail to do so often. And he's gonna tell us what he thinks about that. So look with me, Isaiah chapter five, verses one through seven. The first seven verses is where he gives us <clears throat> that kind of big idea of the whole chapter. Read along with me if you would. It'll be on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible with you today. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one, free gift. We just want you to have God's word in your hand. It's powerful. We believe if you start reading it, it'll shape the way you think. It's pretty amazing. So if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're new to that, and just get your hands on a Bible, start reading 
So Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1, says this. says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So that's Isaiah saying he's going to sing this song now for his beloved. That's God. God is his beloved about God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And here's the key verse, so really key in on this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So that verse seven there kind of is the capstone to that first section of Isaiah chapter five. And essentially what Isaiah is doing is he's using the metaphor of a vineyard. Did you catch that? He's using the metaphor of a vineyard to say, look, uh, if God compared his people to a vineyard, he would say to them, everything that you should need to produce a great harvest of grapes, I have given you. I built a wall around you to protect you from those that would want to come and consume you. I built a watchtower where someone could stand guard to make sure you were protected and good. I, I cultivated the soil. I tilled it. I worked hard. I made everything just as it should be in order for you to produce a great harvest of justice and righteousness, or in this case, grapes is what he calls them. But instead of producing the kind of grapes you should have produced, you produced wild grapes. And then he says, what should I think about that as God? When I have given you everything that you need to produce this good grapes, and you've produced wild grapes. And then in verse seven, he clarifies what he means. He says, look, Israel and Judah, you are the vineyard. And rather than producing the grapes of justice and righteousness, you have produced bloodshed and outcry. He does something there. You can't see it in the English. You can only see it in the Hebrew, but it's really interesting. The word for bloodshed and the word for justice and then also the word for righteousness and the word for outcry are, are one letter apart. So in other words, he is using, he's saying, you should have been this, but subtly you were this. It's only one letter different, but it was a complete miss. Now he's, He's talking about justice and righteousness and saying this is what God's people should produce. This is the harvest of grapes that God wants to get from his people, a harvest of justice and righteousness. And he's gonna go on in the chapter to tell us, we're gonna look at four of them, four ways that mark the absence of justice and righteousness. When it's not there, this is what it looks like, essentially. He's gonna say. So we're gonna look at those. But the first question that we might wanna ask is what are justice and righteousness, right? Is that a good question? If we're gonna say he expects justice and righteousness, then the question becomes, well, what, what are they? So let's give ourselves a definition of those two things, all right? So the, the, the first one, justice. Justice is this. At a very basic level, justice is what comes about, it's the result of passing right judgment in the eyes of God. So in any circumstance, in any situation where you have to make a decision, you have to make a judgment between two things, when you pass a judgment and it produces the situation where you have passed a judgment that God would deem to be a right judgment, 
where you've made a right decision. Let's just think of it that way. When you have to make a decision and you make a right decision, that's the result, that the, what results from that decision is what God would call justice. Now, many of us think of that, most of the time when we think of justice, we think about like somebody doing something wrong and then getting the penalty for that, right? But justice in a biblical sense is much bigger. You can kind of extrapolate out. I've given you a very basic definition, but probably a fuller sense of what God's word means, especially in the Old Testament, when it uses the idea of justice is this, is that the world has been fractured by sin, that we live in a world where God's image, which is in his creation, has been fractured by sin. And justice is when we seek to restore that broken image in every circumstance with which God gives us opportunity. So that when I encounter uh, the brokenness that sin produces in a marriage and I restore, I bring restoration to that marriage, perhaps through counsel or by being a good friend or a good listener, that that's an act of justice and righteousness that's being brought to bear in that situation because it's bringing wholeness where there was brokenness. When I offer a cold cup of water to a thirsty person, that's an act of justice. When I feed someone who's hungry, that's an act of justice. Do you with me, church? You see that? That's what God's word means when it talks about justice. Now, righteousness is related and it's close. It's why you almost always see them together. If you read your Old Testament sometime, you'll notice justice and righteousness go together a lot. They're kind of paired together uh, and they're gonna be that way all throughout Isaiah. Righteousness is this, in a person, righteousness is having a character that aligns with God's character. That's what righteousness is. Having a character that aligns with God's character. In other words, a character that says where your heart says, your emotions say, and your mind says that what God declares is right is right, and what God declares is wrong is wrong, and that loves the things that God loves and that hates the things that, God's, that God hates. That's what, that's what it means to be righteous. It means to be shaped to have, a, to have sort of the shape of God in your way of life and in your thinking. Are you with me, church? Now, here's the interesting thing. Again and again in the Old Testament, this idea of justice and righteousness has a lot to do with how we treat the most vulnerable members of society. With how we treat the most vulnerable members of society. In the Old Testament, You'll be surprised if you read through, if you did a word study on justice and righteousness, you'd be surprised with how often God talks about justice and he, he attaches it to our treatment of, in the Old Testament, the widow, the orphan, and the, the sojourner, the, the foreigner, the immigrant. He's gonna tie because those are the most vulnerable members of that society and not much has changed. But we shouldn't just think of it as those three things. Essentially, those three groups of people stand for our treatment of people who are vulnerable because the laws of the land, the systems of the culture don't afford those people protection and therefore they are vulnerable. And God says the way you treat those vulnerable people is the marker of whether or not you're a just people. It's the marker of whether or not you're a righteous people. He's gonna tie it with them all the time. Listen to Deuteronomy, a couple things out of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is the second reading of the law of God, right? So when you read through your Old Testament and you read Leviticus and you read Deuteronomy, remember, if you're Jewish and God said, I require justice and righteousness of you, where would you go to find a definition of justice to find out what does that mean? I'm supposed to be just, what? Okay, tell me what that means. You would go to the law. You would go to Leviticus and you'd go to Deuteronomy and you'd say, show me what justice and, righteous, justice and righteousness are. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. He says, he, being God, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, 
giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see what he just did there? He said, you were foreigners, Israel, you were foreigners in Egypt, right? And that didn't go so well for you, and God brought you out, and so you should love the foreigner. You should love the sojourner, because you know what that's like, essentially is what he's saying. Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18 says, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you, not I request, I command you to do this. So what are we learning about justice and righteousness, right? At the very least, what we're seeing is that it's tied to our treatment of vulnerable people and restoring what is broken in the image of God and in the peace that, is, that God would like for them to experience in life, that God is saying, your ability to restore the brokenness of my image in their vulnerability is a large part of what it means to be just and righteous. You follow me, church? You with me? Yeah, some of you are you're reading between the lines here. You're seeing the implications of this. Let me invite you to consider something. At the very least, right, let's be, a, let's be as apolitical as possible here. Let's not worry about political allegiances. That's not the point of any of this. The point is the gospel. And the point is what the gospel says. And our allegiance to any affiliation in the world, whatever political party, comes second to our allegiance to the gospel and bringing its culture to bear in our world. And God is saying here that if you're going to be just and you're going to be righteous, then you better care. You better care for the vulnerable. So let me invite you to consider, wherever you're coming from, what our attitude should be towards the sojourners who are among us, towards immigrants and refugees specifically. Let me invite you to consider that in light of what God's word says about justice and righteousness and that he calls us to it. And we're about to see in Isaiah chapter five that things don't go well for God's people when they fail to practice justice and when they fail to practice righteousness. So look with me at verses eight through 10 then. So what are the marks of a failure to be just and a failure to be righteous from God's perspective? Number one we'll find is greed in chapters eight through, or verses eight through 10. So look with me at those. Verses, verse eight says this, this is woe to those, we're gonna see that phrase, woe. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. That's basically a large amount of land yielding a very little amount, right? Uh, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah, same idea. So here's what God is saying. The first marker of a failure to practice justice and righteousness is greed. Now, if you know uh, the law in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel came into the land that God had promised them, God allotted certain portions of land and certain boundaries of land to every tribe. He said, okay, tribe of Judah, you're gonna get this land, and tribe of Asher, you're gonna get that land, and so on and so forth. And when he did that then, he set up a system where he said, look, if you find yourself in a situation where you fall on hard times economically and you have to sell off your family land, uh, then I'm gonna set up a system where you're gonna sell that land, it's gonna you know, give you what you need financially so that hopefully you can get out from, a, from that hole, from that difficulty. But at the end of a certain amount of time, 
it is required that that land be returned to you so that the buyer buys it at a lower rate, essentially, because they know they're not gonna possess it forever. They shouldn't. They are supposed to give it back because God essentially wanted the tribes to keep the land that he had apportioned to them so that the land was meant to always return back into the hands of the people who originally owned it. And so what is God saying here through Isaiah? He's saying, you haven't done what I told you to do. Because if the, the rich essentially are adding house to house and land to land, in other words, they are taking advantage of those who find themselves in difficult circumstances, the poor essentially, and they are taking land from them and they're just building more homes for themselves and acquiring more land for themselves and essentially not intending to ever return it, right? To not ever follow what God's law told them to actually do. And so what he's saying is, You've been greedy. Now, perhaps you and I might listen to this and go, well, I'm not like, I'm not buying land. I'm not gouging anyone or, or getting a, a low price on land because someone's in need. I'm not like snatching up land from the poor and building multiple houses for myself on it. So maybe this doesn't apply to me, right? But the idea is essentially this, is that these people are, are saying, I want more for myself, more stuff, more security in my material goods. I wanna add more to more to more to more. And so they're, and they're doing that on the backs of the poor. Now, here's what I would say. Here's really the heart of greed. The heart of greed is the person who believes that everything that they possess is for them to possess more. I use what I have to gain more for myself rather than seeing that God calls me to see everything I have as a gift from him and then to utilize that to acquire more glory and fame for him and to establish his kingdom in the world, to bring justice and righteousness to bear so that I give away the things that I possess rather than trying to possess more. I don't walk forward in greed. I walk forward in, in giving, in generosity, that's, that's the idea. So he's accusing his people first and foremost. He says, you, you fail to practice justice and righteousness because you've begun to believe that the things you possess, you possess by your own merit and that they're yours to do with as you please. When in actuality, I say to you, they're mine and I'm gonna tell you how to use them. And so God would say the same to us where we possess things. The question is, do we believe they're ours to acquire more of those things for ourselves, to be utilized for our own ends or are they God's? Whose are they? That's the question that God puts in front of us when it comes to justice and righteousness. Here's the second thing. In verse 11 through 17, he says, a failure to practice justice and righteousness is displayed in self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. This is the one God has been convicting me on as I've looked through this text and has been studying it. Listen to verse 11 through 17, what it says. It says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, that's another word for death, essentially, Death has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." 
All right, so I don't know if you caught that, but at the very beginning of that section, in verse 11 and 12, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Right? So his issue is not actually alcohol. It's not like, oh, you're drinking too much. The idea is the person who is at every corner looking to feed their appetites. Right? This person is up in the morning first thing, and they've got a bottle on the lips. And the last thing they're doing before they head to bed is what? Got a bottle on their lips. But then he goes on to say, and basically everywhere they go, they head towards the sound of the lyre and the harp and the tambourine. Now, so, you know, that may not translate as much, but essentially he's saying you're always at the party, right? Now, I know when's the last time you were at a party and when they really wanted to, you know, to cut it loose, they broke out the tambourine and the harp, right? And the lyre. And you're thinking, yeah, this is the kind of party I want to be at. Right, but whatever the equivalent of that is, I love that the flute, I just, I'm picturing someone at a party with a flute just going like, let's jam, guys. Like, this is gonna be great. And that that person is immediately asked to leave the party. You're done. You can go. Right? But the idea is essentially this person is indulging every one of their senses at every turn. That's what they desire to do. It's like, where's the next party? Where's the next thing I can consume? Where's the next, you know, whether it be indulging my appetite for alcohol or indulging my appetite for food or indulging my appetite for social media or indulging my appetite for entertainment. At every turn is where can I consume more? Give me more stuff, give me more stuff. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed the great irony of that, but he said, what, what happens as a result of that? He says, Sheol or death will open wide its mouth and swallow them up. The person who lives their life in self-indulgent consumption is ultimately consumed by that act itself. So rather than consuming, you will be consumed. You got it? That's the danger. Now, he said one other thing that should really highlight for us the danger of failing to practice justice and righteousness because we are so self-indulgent at every turn. He says, therefore, they will not see, they do not see what the Lord is doing in other words, there's something about living a consuming lifestyle, something about being self-indulgent and never disciplining ourselves. And so, no, I won't consume that. No, I will not take that in. There's something about, den- about failing to ever deny yourself anything that you might want that causes you to not be able to hear or see what God is up to. And I think that's because you're so busy consuming things that you like that you have no time to actually ask, well, God, what are you doing? If your eyes are constantly on entertainment, when do they have time to be on the Lord and to see what he's doing? And the funny thing is he's doing stuff all around you all the time. God's on the move constantly. And yet you, like, so one of the markers might be of self-indulgence might be if someone asks me where is God at work around you all the time and I can't identify anything, is it because I'm so self-indulgent that I'm just consuming things all the time and God's at work in my friend's life and he's at work in my workplace and he's at work in my family and I just don't see it. I'm missing it. I'm blind to it. Why am I blind to it? Perhaps because I'm overindulging, right? Now he's not saying that any, consuming any of those things are bad in and of themselves. He's saying that you are indulging yourself over the top in those things, so that your appetite is constantly for them. So the question for us, I think, I think, church, is to say, where am I indulging myself? Where am I overfeeding my appetite? Is it social media, right? Like, can I not wake up in the morning without first thing checking Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever it is that is your go-to? I don't know. 
right? I mean, do I have to, do I have to get my news through Facebook constantly? By the way, those things, as, when you overindulge them, they, they will consume you. Those things are, man, they're hard on the soul, I think, in terms of making it seem like everybody's got a better life than you. That's an awful way to live. Just constantly be wondering, it seems like everybody else has more fun than I am. That's tough. Am I overindulging myself in my appetite for, you know, entertainment or perhaps food or, or drink? It could be any of those things. It could be something else that I'm not even thinking of right now. But that's the question that God puts in front of us because he says self-indulgence is counter to justice and righteousness. Third thing he says is arrogance. Look at verse 18 through 19. It says, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Okay, so here's what's going on here in verses 18 through 19. Essentially what Isaiah is saying is that the person who fails to practice justice and righteousness treats sin like it's their job. That's what he's saying. He says, you're drawing sin like with cart ropes. The image he's painting is like an ox pulling a cart and the ox's job is to pull the cart. That's what the ox is made to do. And he says, my people, you are treating sin like it's that cart and like it's your job. You're doing it so much and so well and so all the time that you, it's, it, you, someone watching you would assume it must be their job to walk in that sin. That's how committed they are to it. That's the idea of pulling sin and iniquity with the cart ropes. And then the response of those people is not to say, God, have I sinned against you? But rather to say, well, if God's got a problem with it, with it, let him come and do something about it. Do you see the arrogance of that? To say to God, you know what, God, if you've got a problem, why don't you come down here and tell me about it? That's essentially what Isaiah is saying, that the people are saying. If we find ourselves, now this, this should be our attitude. When it comes to, when it comes to sin, one of, my, one of my regular prayers is this. And say, God, I understand that when I walk in sin, I need you to discipline me, right? Hebrews 12 tells me that. You're a good father, and a good father disciplines his kids. That's what a good father does. Not harshly, but so that his kids would know that's a bad place to be. Come back over here. This is where life is. That's what a good dad does. And you tell me that you do that. So I want you to do that to me. But my prayer, Lord, is this, is that, you would, that I would be tender before your spirit so that you can convict me with gentleness and that I would respond at your lightest touch, that I would respond and go, yeah, 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 okay, good. Yes, thank you, Lord. So that you don't have to come with a heavy hand of discipline. That's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you, honestly. Wouldn't you love it if God just gave a little nudge and you moved? Instead of needing God to kind of come and go, you're gonna move, you know? But God's going to get you to move. So let's not be among the arrogant who say, we've got a problem, let him tell me about it, let him do something, right? Let me just tell you, he will do something and you won't like the way he does it. Do not shake your finger at God and say, prove it. That's a dangerous place to be, friends. Last thing in this text, and it's really the summation of all the other things kind of added up. This is where they lead. Look at verse 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd 
in their own sight. So essentially the last thing he says is this. He says the marker of a failure to be just and a failure to be righteous is that you reject the moral authority of God. And you start to call things that God calls good, you start to call them evil. And you start to call things that God calls evil, good. You probably don't have to think very hard and very long to think about ways that that happens all the time in the culture around us. Things that God says, that's not good, that's evil. And our culture at large says that's good. But church, here's what that does to us. It's not just the culture outside of us doing that, it's we that do that too. That we call things good that God has said those are not good. And we call things evil that God has said, no, those, those things are good. And what he's saying is, when you do that, what you're doing is you're determining what is right and wrong rather than letting God be the moral authority, the one who declares this is what is good and this is what is evil. And God calls that way of operating sin. He says, that's not justice, that's not righteousness. You need to let me determine those things for you. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. It's not like we wake up one day and we've, we've been failing to practice justice and righteousness and all of a sudden we're calling good evil and evil good. It always happens over time and it always begins this way. We practice things that are evil and because we love them and we don't wanna be convicted to stop doing them, we justify them. We, we make up a reason why it's okay and we still say, yes, I know it's wrong, but I'm doing it because, because I wasn't getting enough love from my spouse to begin with, so I had to go look for it elsewhere or because I wasn't getting this, or because I didn't have that taken care of financially, I should have had more, somebody cheated me out of it, therefore it's okay that I fill in the blank, right? We justify evil, we don't call it good, we just justify it. But over time, friends, do you know what happens eventually in that way of operating? Eventually, you do that long enough and you will eventually stop saying, I'm just justifying evil and you will start to call what is evil good. You will start to say over time, that's it's good because you can only live so long. You can only live so long trying to convince yourself that you're justified in doing evil things. Eventually, you've got to start calling them good. Otherwise, the weight of doing those things will crush you. So you either give them up and say that they're evil and I won't do them anymore or you eventually you will call them good. Do you guys follow that? That's just the path. That's what, so be wary of that. If you find yourself justifying your actions, just be wary of that because that's what's gonna happen. Like I'm not, that's not like me being doomsday. It's just me following logic, right, and biblical truth. That's, that's what happens. You see it again and again traced out among God's people. So the last thing we need to ask is this, and, and then we're gonna, we're gonna wrap up and take communion together. And I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to God today. But the last thing is this. So we're hearing these words of judgment and they're, they're written to God's people Israel in the Old Testament, but we live on this side of the cross, in this side of the resurrection. So the question might be, like, if I'm a follower of Jesus, are all my sins forgiven in Christ? Somebody say yes and amen, I hope. Yeah. So what's the point in even looking at this, right? Because my sins, Christ has paid for my sins. It's done, right? What am I supposed to do with this Old Testament word of God saying, I'm gonna judge you, Israel, and it's not even written directly to me. It's written to a specific people at a specific time. Let me give you four things I think that you need to know to be able to do with a text like this. I'm just gonna say them, okay? Not even gonna go in depth on them. Number one, we should see that God's words of judgment did come to pass. Like when you read this, it's important that you recognize that when God said right there in Isaiah 5, therefore my people go into exile, that 100 plus years later, guess what happened? They went into exile. So that God is saying, oh yeah, I, 
I mean what I say. That's important. Number two, we should see that God is unchanging and requires justice and righteousness from us. The same God who told Isaiah to write Isaiah 5 and declared, I require justice and righteousness, he didn't change. He has not changed. He is unchanging. He is still a God who requires justice and righteousness from his people. That has not changed. Number three, we should praise God that his judgment for our failures of justice and our failures of righteousness fell on Jesus. That God's wrath for sin fell on Jesus and not on us. And that we have been given, gifted the righteousness of Christ. When we, read, when we read Isaiah 5 and the wrath of God and the declaration of the failure to his people, our right response is not to go, well, they were stupid. Our right response is to go, I've done the exact same thing. And yet Christ bore the wrath of God so that I wouldn't have to. Praise him. Praise him. And the last thing is we should take words of judgment seriously knowing that if we fail to practice justice and righteousness, we reveal that our hearts are filled with unbelief and therefore we will be subject to the wrath of God. If our lives are marked constantly and continually by a failure of justice and a failure of righteousness, then we reveal we don't really believe what God has told us about the gospel and who Jesus is. And therefore that wrath of God does not fall upon Christ for us, but upon us one day. You can't just excuse God's word of judgment by going, oh, it's on Jesus and I don't have to worry about being just and worry about being righteous. Justice and righteousness should come forth from the person who has believed in Jesus because he has put his spirit within us. And if God's spirit is within us, then we cannot help but love justice and love righteousness because his spirit loves what? Justice. And righteousness. So if we fail to have that love in us and fail to live that out, then the question becomes, is that spirit within us? And we need to take that seriously. I think that's how we handle these texts on this side of the cross, knowing what Jesus has done and delighting in it and giving him praise for it, but not dismissing the possibility of judgment in our own lives should we fail to live out justice and righteousness as a response to what God has done in Christ. So here's what I'd like to do. Here's my assumption. If you're like me, uh, whenever God's word is convicting, often I'll sit under the teaching of the word and God's doing something. He's stirring something in me. But I'll go home and two hours later, I'll forget about it because I'm, I have a short attention span. And I usually need to respond in the moment. So here's what I believe. I believe God is stirring a word of conviction in you related to those four things we just talked about or perhaps related to something else. And I wanna give you a chance to respond to that. So we're gonna take communion as you take communion, as you hold the elements in your hand, I just want you to ask God, God, what are, what are you convicting me of? I'm listening. Just op an open-handed posture before the Lord. Lord, I'm listening. I don't need to be convicted by some preacher. You don't need my conviction on you. I don't know what's going on in your life behind closed doors. I have no idea. You don't need me. You do need the Spirit of God to speak a word of conviction to you. If that's what he wants to speak. So I want you to listen with an open-handed posture. We're gonna take communion. Then we're gonna sing a song together at the end of it. And during that song, I'd like to invite any of those of you who feel that sense of conviction to come forward. I know that's a bold ask, but I trust the Spirit's at work. And I wanna invite you to come forward. And I wanna, we wanna pray over you. I'm gonna ask Renee Blanchard to pray for us. 
Uh, and I just, I want you to be open to understand this. The thing that you need to begin to walk in justice and righteousness is not just to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to begin to do so. You need an empowerment of the Spirit of God. You need a fresh anointing from the Spirit of God. And I wanna invite you to come and, and receive that in prayer. I believe that God will give you through his Spirit and the power of his Spirit, as we invite the Spirit to come and speak over you, that he will give you a fresh empowerment of that Spirit to walk in justice and to walk in righteousness, to, to be rid of those sin patterns once and for all, to be done and to move forward in what pleases God. So I wanna invite you to come and receive that. I know it takes courage and it takes boldness, but just know God's people love you. You don't have to be afraid or embarrassed around here at all. I'm gonna join you because God has convicted me that I need prayer for self-indulgence. That's where I have not loved justice and not loved righteousness and God is calling me to repentance. So I'm gonna join you and invite Renee to pray God's spirit's power over us to walk forward in a better way. So ushers, why don't you come? Let's, let's take communion together. We're good. We got, we got time. So I just, again, want to invite you to just let the Lord speak to you in this time. Invite his spirit with open hands to say, Spirit, you convict me and you show me. And don't, don't come forward because you think I want you to. Come because the spirit invites you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're gonna invite you to let these elements pass as they go out. Obviously, they represent Christ's body and his blood to us. And they're symbolic. They don't give us grace in any way, but they remind us of the grace we've received in Christ. So we're going to consider as followers of Jesus our sin before him and where we are in need of repentance. But we want to invite you to let the elements pass because you, you haven't yet taken those as your own. You haven't believed in those things yet. Just use this as time to consider what God is speaking to you. We believe he's pursuing you, that he loves you, that he sent his son to die for you, rose from the dead. And so we believe he has something for you in this time. So just let this be a time to consider in prayer and, and perhaps waiting and considering before the Lord. Ushers, if you'd come, let's receive the bread.